A quick disclaimer before we get started, this episode contains information that may be triggering for some regarding gun violence, so please listen at your own discretion. Exactly one year ago, I was walking down Central Avenue in Highland Park, Illinois with my wife, my daughter, my son, and my dog. We were all clad in red, white, and blue. We were waving to observers for the kid and pet parade that happens prior to the real parade every year. We would learn later in that day that at the same time as us walking on that street, someone had climbed onto the roof of one of the stores over the parade route to load an assault rifle and take aim. It took me months before I could look at the pictures I took from that day. It's strange seeing us all smiling and laughing, walking along the parade route with our friends, celebrating my wife's favorite holiday. My recurrent thought every time I look at those photos is, why did he decide to wait 30 more minutes after we walked by before firing his first shot? It has been one year since the mass shooting at the July 4th parade in my hometown that killed seven people, injured many more, and left us to join the growing list of communities dealing with the mental trauma of gun violence. I'm going to take a brief moment of silence here to honor the seven lives as well as those who continue to battle with injuries in life. Generally, this is a week Julie and I would probably have bypassed for new content with the holiday being the day that we're releasing this episode. But as the date started to come closer, I felt pretty strongly that I wanted to honor the day with an episode that would both help me and and hopefully help you learn more about gun violence and how I myself and anybody listening could be part of the solution. Gun violence, well we all know is very prevalent, can feel far away at times. I know prior to last year, it felt pretty far away from me. The stories on the news, while heartbreaking and terrifying, were in places that were not near me. They were not near my home. My town felt safe. We had low violent crime numbers, and no matter how inconsequential, we had a local assault weapon ban. I just never thought it would come to us, and I think many people feel the same. But that's the thing. There is always a next place, and until we make radical gun reform, the next place will continue to come too soon. Gun violence is a public health crisis, and today we want to dive into that problem with one of the preeminent experts in gun violence research and prevention, someone who has dedicated the majority of his career as a physician and researcher to preventing guns from taking more lives. I hope that you'll stay with us to listen to this great conversation with our guest and that you'll leave with more knowledge and more insight, but maybe even more so with some motivation to take action. So today, July 4th, 2023, I am excited to share an episode with my colleague and friend and co-host, Dr. Julie Bruni, and our esteemed guests as we talk about gun violence and public health. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. It is my honor to welcome our esteemed expert this week, Dr. Garen Wintemute. Dr. Wintemute is a distinguished professor of emergency medicine and Baker Terrett Chair in Violence Prevention at the University of California, Davis. He is the founding director of the Violence Prevention Research Program there and the California Firearm Violence Research Center, the nation's first publicly funded center for research in this field. 
He trained initially as a biologist at Yale and then attended medical school and residency out in the West Coast at UC Davis and then studied epidemiology and injury prevention at Johns Hopkins. Wow, you went coast to coast there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) He uh, practices and teaches emergency medicine at UC Davis Medical Center, a level one trauma center. And after doing uh, my prep work for this episode, I would say that his bio really doesn't touch the surface of how much work Dr. Wintemute has done and continues to do. Um, very much a bio that made me question what I have really done in my career, honestly. So um, it, we're really, really lucky to have Dr. Wintemute for this uh, episode. It's a very special episode, as I mentioned in the intro, and honestly, something I'm really excited to learn about. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And and by the way, I just have a head start on you in compiling <laughs> juicy bio stuff. So you got time. What a diplomatic answer. That's lovely. Yeah, I'm very interested to know what when we're at our stage of our career, what we will be going on to talk to somebody. It won't be podcasts. It'll be some hologramic, uh, you know, whatever thing. So sure. but for now, it's podcasts and that's what we're doing. So, OK, to start, you have a very unique niche here. You're an emergency room physician. You treat, you still do that. You're still practicing, but you're also a public health expert and leader in a field of violence prevention. Um, I think not many people think of public health and violence prevention, and we're certainly going to get into that more. But can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing the work you do now? Sure. Um, I started emergency medicine uh, with an idea that I might work overseas. And Spent some time in Cambodia right after Pol Pot time, um, which was, among other things, a, a very intense lesson in the power of violence to reshape entire societies. And came back and decided not to continue to work overseas. There was plenty of violence here, and I would, would focus on that. I think from, a, from an ER doc's point of view, and for, for you two as, as orthopedists, it, it, this same analogy works. The idea is to focus upstream on the flow of events that bring people through the doors of the emergency department and for you all into, into the, the operating and specifically for fi- firearm violence. What goes with that is recognizing that most people who die from gunshot wounds never make it to the ED. They die where they're shot. So it doesn't matter how fast the paramedics are. It doesn't matter how good we are downstairs or how good you guys are in the OR, but the wounds are not survivable. So when I'm talking to clinicians, I make the point that if you want to reduce firearm mortality, you need to keep people from being shot in the first place. And that's sort of the story of my career. That's great. I, we talk about that a lot, um, both personally and also on the show, that that you, you can make an impact in the room with a single person, but it's really the stuff that happens outside with with policy and with, with talking. And <laughs> kind of why we made the podcast in general, to be honest. We wanted to hit more ears with our with our words instead of just the one person in the room that we get on a soapbox for. So now we just get to soapbox for people weekly. Um, what stood out about like U.S. gun violence? I mean, I, it's certainly a different time, meaning that there was many things. Maybe it's the same as it was, but, I, I you know, we're in a different era now than we were then. What stood out that made you kind of not leave and go internationally? Yeah. Then as now, there was just so much of it. Um, I got involved in the late 80s, early 90s when rates of firearm death were higher than they had ever been in history. And they declined thereafter, but we've reached that same peak again. So Mm. what's happening now is a whole generation of people who are the age my kids would be if I had kids are coming into the field, basically in the same climate that got me into the field almost 40 years ago. Interesting. So it's, it's 
I want to say cyclic. We don't know that. But the rates that we are facing now are higher than they have ever been in our history, except for about 30 years ago. And the height of firearm mortality in the United States is absolutely unique among wealthy industrialized countries. There, there is no comparator. How does that hit you? thinking about the fact yeah. that you've put in all this time and effort and you feel like you've made a difference and then now all of a sudden we're all back to that peak again. Yes. Um, something that applies to the work I do in research, applies to what I do clinically, applies to what you guys do clinically. I can't fix the world, but I can fix you. And so when I'm doing research or working to translate research into policy, I keep my eyes focused on my objective. And aspirationally, sure, I would like to wake up someday and know that nobody would ever be shot in the United States again. Um, that's not going to happen, but I can help get us in that direction some little bit. How did your, your work in the working in the emergency department affect your path? I, I imagine it would quite a bit. It, it's very direct. I, I, I sometimes get the opposite question. How in the world does an ER doc um, have anything to do with violence prevention. And, and to me, they're seamless. And it's, it's, I, I'd much rather have somebody not get shot than have them be shot and end up in our, in our, in our, one of our trauma bays for, for everybody to work on. And, and I don't, I, I'm 71. I do not work in the trauma bay anymore. That's a young person's sport. I still people see people who've been shot. Maybe they were shot a couple of weeks ago. Maybe they were shot 30 years ago and they're still dealing with the sequelae and, and, and that's who I see. But the, the idea that clinicians generally or ER docs in particular don't have standing to work in prevention always struck me as sort of ludicrous. Who better? That's such a good point. Well, I think we all as physicians, and I shouldn't speak for all physicians, but right now I feel what I hear from physicians is that we're all just overwhelmed by our nine to five so much that it's hard to think outside the nine to five. Um, so I, I think that your point is excellent and it probably just feels overwhelming as a physician to think about it right now. Um, I want to use, uh, my next question, cause you already mentioned kind of how we compare to the rest of the world and how there just isn't a comparison. Give us some background on gun violence in the United States and how it's evolved and, and to where we are at this moment. Sure. Um, we had very high rates of gun violence in the 1920s. Um, we had them again in the late 80s to early 90s. And as I said, we have them again now. Um, let me sort of scope out the problem. Um, we need to keep in mind that for people who work in the field, gun violence is not just interpersonal violence, homicide and assault, but it includes suicide, mm -hmm. uh, which is much more common than homicide, has a completely different demographic and doesn't have a public story. People tend not to think about it. Um, it, it works like this. And I'm going to come back to the comparators. Um, it, it's not that there's no other country that we could compare ourselves to. It's just that there's no other country that's like us. And, and, but this is the key. We are not a uniquely violent people. People who live in the United States aren't more prone than others to engage in violence. What, we're, what makes us different is not our rates of assaultive violence, which are sort of middle of the road for wealthy industrialized countries. It's that we have a unique level of access to a technology that changes the outcome. 
So what's unique about us is our rate of fatal violence, particularly assaultive violence. And to anticipate a question, that technology is a firearm. What makes us unique is, I, I can summarize it, and really not, this is a very simple summary that really does not do injustice to the issue. In the United States, <clears throat> there has to be a specific reason for a person not to own a firearm. Hmm. Otherwise, it's theirs. In the rest of the wealthy industrialized world, it's the opposite. There has to be a specific reason for a person to own a firearm. And, and that's been true for a very long time. And the upshot is that we have rates of firearm violence, not violence, firearm violence, that are off the charts. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? Not not the the rates, but why why do you think that we have the policy in place that we do that that's different than the other people? Uh, everything I'm going to mention and a bunch of other things. Um, we have a whole array of founding mythology that uh, is oriented around firearms. We wrested control of the colonies from the British using firearms. We wrested control of the rest of the continent from the people who lived there already using firearms. We conquered the world as the good guys using firearms, and particularly in, in World War II. We continue to rely through our public and private policy on violence as a means of solving problems. And we have brought that public policy, if you will, home. And we have re-enshrined, and, and we're, we're moving ever more quickly in, in this direction, almost daily now, we have re-enshrined the idea that every person is responsible for their own armed defense. Um, and we are at the brink, we'll probably get into this topic later, we are at the brink of a time in our country when there may be many people who say out loud and act on what they say, that individual citizens acting collectively are responsible for changing the course of the country using armed violence. Mm -hmm. What people would label maybe as a militia. Uh, and as domestic violent extremism, um, just I, I, the, the example that is reverberating in my head right now is the, the former, former candidate for governor of Arizona, Carrie Lake, saying just a few days ago in response to Donald Trump's indictment that Anyone who sought to hold Donald Trump accountable was going to have to come through Carrie Lake and 75 million others like her, most of whom are card-carrying, I'm quoting her basically, card-carrying members of the National Rifle Association. A, a fairly clear implication of an armed threat um, to control the way the judicial system works. Which blows my mind that you, I don't know, as an elected official, that's, that's, your, that's your outward-facing stance is, well, is a not-veiled threat. Yeah, she didn't win. She lost, but she, she yeah. ran for governor, and she's, she remains active in public affairs, and I suspect will yeah. seek public office again. But, um, yes, I, I'm sorry. Let me, let me run just for a moment with this. Um, it was true in the 80s, 90s, when I was just getting started, that it blew people's minds to talk about firearm violence as a public health problem. Today... That's pretty settled terrain. Not completely, but it's not a hard sell anymore. Now, the, a generation later, the equivalent is showing people the data. We've been doing some survey research on this topic. Showing people the data, supporting the contention that there is 
widespread interest in using violence, and this country would be armed violence, to redirect the future of the United States in an authoritarian conservative direction. People have a hard time believing it, but it's true. It's interesting because you did mention that that at this point, maybe the, the general public would say, you know, gun violence is a public health problem. And I marinated on that, um, not just from researching for this episode, but just the thought process in my own personal experience, um, um, which I've backgrounded for people. But, you know, where I live is a, a relatively affluent suburb like of Chicago. Violent crime is historically rare, obviously you know, my community has become pretty active with gun violence for, for very obvious reasons. But I think even leading up to our event a year ago, but then for communities who have not, you know, for fortunately have not had to go through something like this, this, this problem feels a world away, right? It feels like it's terrible to watch on the news and, and you certainly have strong feelings. Many people do towards guns, but, but the question then would be is how does this affect public health for people who aren't even being affected by the gun itself? Yes. Um, so let's spend a moment on mass shootings. One of, one of the things that always gets said in the wake of a, a big public mass shooting, the ones, the ones that have names, place names that we all have come to, to know. Somebody always says, I never thought it would happen here. Um, and the point is, there's no such thing as a place where that can't happen. What mass shootings are is the one form of firearm violence about which no one can tell a story that leaves themselves out. People can tell a story about homicide and look at the demographics of homicide and go, that's not me. That's not my people. That's not my nice, the nice place where I live. Not my problem, which is frankly a, a reason we've made as little progress as we have. Um, we don't have a public story about suicide. But if you ask people, oh, yeah, there was grandpa or a cousin's spouse or somebody. We did some research here in, in California statewide. Um, and California is a, a, a reasonable microcosm of the country demographically. And we asked people to tote up all kinds of exposures to fire violence. Have you been shot? Um, but also, um, are, do you hear gunshots in your neighborhood? Do you know somebody uh, who's at risk for harming somebody else? Do you know somebody who's at risk for harming themselves? And if you add all of those up, two-thirds of adults in California have some exposure to firearm violence. We just don't think about it. And one of the, the early steps to getting everybody working on solving the problem is getting everybody to recognize that they have skin in the game. It's their problem. It's not somebody else's. Yeah, awareness and Anecdotes obviously make a big, are, are huge. We, we find huge. that in medicine everywhere. We tell people data all the time and you think it resonates, but it's that story of, you know, you're met with, you know, my uncles had a bad experience. And so I'm not going to do that uh, sort of thing. So yeah, it's very interesting stuff. I, I obviously, I personally relate. I, I certainly was in a position where I was not happy with the gun violence that was going on in this country um, and, and certainly tried to make an impact through my own voting, um, um, but was not, I definitely had more of the, it's not my problem or it's not going to come here attitude before it came here. And so it's a big wake up call. And certainly the more it happens to, to, to more and more communities, I think everybody feels a little less safe. Um, it happens at places where, you know, we historically felt safe, things like malls and, um, 
yeah, places that we just would go and congregate. So that's at least my own personal experience. Several years ago, boy, close to 10, um, I was giving a talk to a general audience, probably 300 people in the room. And just on a whim, I, 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 in whatever I was saying, I said, look, we're the people who now have escape plans when we go to the mall. And I watched the entire audience stiffen. And I, I gotcha. I was right. We, we are that. We are those people. It has crept up on us. We live just a little bit as if we were in a war zone, wherever we are. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a TikTok that I saw recently that someone had posted. And I think they were in, they're in somewhere in Europe. And it was, um, the, the poster was in a European nation that doesn't experience the levels of gun violence that we do. But he had friends that were visiting from the U.S. And it was even a video of like a car backfiring in the background and the two women that were from the U.S. ducked and covered. And everybody else just went on hanging out in the outdoor cafe like nothing had happened. And he was, just had a lot of empathy for, gosh, how sad that is, that that's your lived experience growing up in the United States of always, you know, having... A, a low grade constant fear that it's about to happen and, and having to have a emergency action plan in your brain going at all times. And, and you don't think about it until you're somewhere else where that's, that's not a consistent concern, I suppose. Yeah. If, if you live in a big city in the United States, there's a good chance you live in a place where there's a, a network of sound sensors has been mm -hmm. deployed so that when gunfire occurs, Everybody knows because they can triangulate exactly where it is. Um, and there's a whole literature on the false positive, false negative rate of gunfire detection in the United States. Other countries look at that and go, are you guys crazy? And, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. I remember uh, just thinking about this. Um, we do those in schools, right? We have the the drills, the intruder drills or like endangered drills. and And I think... Again, leading up to something like this, it was always like, oh, it's so sad that we have to do these, but like, I'm, you know, I'm glad we're doing them and whatnot. And I remember the first one that, that our kids had to go through after our July 4th event, because they still have to do them and how, how impactful, how hard it was, like how it was to even talk about to the kids about why you're doing it. Um, so just even things like that, that we just kind of take for granted is every day. I guess it wasn't completely taken for granted because it was still like, we're sad we have to do this, but it just became part of life and, and, and how even traumatic that can feel. And then the other thing that stood out to me was like, I, I still to this day have a hard time sometimes going to places that have like lower roofs um, that are all over the place. And it's not, I, I, I certainly am not, I, there are many people struggling with it more than I am, but I just don't look at it the same. It just doesn't have the same appearance to me than it used to. I can sense that I'm looking at it differently than I used to. And it's just amazing how your world can be so altered by a single experience. Um, and and I maybe saying it and you're listening to this podcast, you may be like, it's not that surprising based on what you went through, but it's just it, it, when you've gone through it and you're reflecting back on it, it's pretty impressive. Now, imagine you've, you've just, thank you for, for saying that on the air. You've just described persistent effects from an exposure, which was, were you at the scene? Did you, did you? Yeah. Did so you... it's a, it's a good point. So I was not at the scene. We were about three blocks uh, away. So we did not hear gunshots to my knowledge. We saw the band running all which directions and it looked weird. The band was running everywhere. And then as they got to us with their instruments, they yelled, there was gunshots. And so we ran into a, 
um, a restaurant that was right behind us and hid in the basement. So we were in the basement for about four hours uh, okay. down there, not really knowing what's going on, but, but yeah, but no, we were not at the scene. So there's, there's a literature going back to the eighties, um, that started focusing on schools. And, and one of the things it found, and, and this won't be a surprise to anybody is the more direct the exposure, the more intense the exposure, the more likely there are to be long, long-standing <clears throat> sequelae. So what you're reporting is that even indirect re- exposure at some remove can have persistent effects. Now, turn that into a much more direct exposure and think about the people who live in places where that kind of direct exposure happens all the time, yes. where half the adults have seen somebody, been an eyewitness to a fatal shooting, that kind of thing. And, and not once, but over and over, and where gunshots happen every day. And just try to imagine the effects that that has on a person's emotional well-being, their physical well-being, the trajectory of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, as we think about firearm violence as, as a public health problem, that's kind of the next frontier. We, we, we get it that if you've been shot, we should think about this as a health problem. But for every person who's been shot, there are all those concentric layers of other people who have been affected and we do nothing about that. We don't even recognize its existence by and large. We actually live in one of those cities and I think I made reference to this in maybe the outline we were talking about, but yeah. we live in Chicago, um, which is, um, you know, for, right, for maybe unfairly, but frequently in the, in the media for being the model city for how much gun, gun violence there is. I'd love to build on what you just said and maybe talk about the difference between where we are in this country and, and, and the things you've seen with mass shootings, which you know I experienced and are the ones that maybe garner the most headlines. But then in addition to daily violence, like how much daily gun violence we're seeing in these cities. Sure. Let me spend just a moment on Chicago. Um, because you're right. Chicago gets... I, I think an undeserved bad rap for having high rates of violence. I mean, you can't argue with the data on what the rates are, but but Chicago, to an old person, I, I remember Chicago as a leader in making local efforts to control access to firearms. And, and what happened in Chicago, and now I am oversimplifying some, is there was a, a network of gun stores right around Chicago. Um, and you could go a little further, farther, um, to Indianapolis. You could go even farther down into the Mississippi Delta. I actually made that trip um, and see where the guns that are used in crime in Chicago come from. Um, there's a little town um, in, in the Mississippi Delta, which is a recognized source of crime guns in Chicago. People make the trip, buy the guns, bring it back. There are billboards in that little town in Mississippi saying, don't you buy guns and take them back to Chicago. We're ATF and we're, we're, we're watching. Everybody knows about this kind of stuff. So one of the tragedies is that our federal policies undercut local efforts to tackle the problem. Yeah. I mean, that comes up a lot in local politics. It makes me think of uh, when the new mayor of Chicago was elected, uh, one of the major local news outlets here in Chicago um, went out to the suburbs in like Naperville, which is not anywhere near Chicago and was asking people at a restaurant what they thought about Brandon Johnson being elected. And so that spurred a whole thing on social media um, of just and and how Chicago, you know, with not a perfect city, clearly, but ha- often does get scapegoated in politics by by this city that has all this good. So people have made T-shirts that says STFU about Chicago. <laughs> like, 
you don't live here, shut the fuck up about it. And I just, I just, that's such a Chicago man <laughs> that I, I, I find very funny and I'm a little bit proud of, I would have to say, but absolutely. And, and I, I think we can get into a lot of reasons why, um, but that's not to, to downplay the fact that there is a, a huge gun violence problem here and it, and it tends to be in areas that are completely under-resourced. So, sure. There wasn't a trauma center in the part of Chicago that most needed a trauma center for a long time, right? There is now, but why wasn't there? Because the people who make decisions didn't see the need. It didn't affect them that there wasn't. It affected people who lived in Chicago, but not the people making the decisions. And, you know, um, Selwyn Rogers is a a friend and colleague, and and I suspect Mm -hmm. if it weren't for him and people like him, that trauma center might still not be there. So, yeah. sure, um, Chicago's made mistakes. Every city has made mistakes. It's sort of the same mistake every place. We, we tend to focus our resources where we, the people who make decisions, would like them to be and not where they're most needed. You mentioned the generational gap between you know yourself and then uh, you know us and then the pe- different peaks. And I, I want to go back to the... the your early work and generation. And I think many people, even the younger people would be shocked sometimes to find out that there was an assault weapons ban in this country at one point. Um, I think that sometimes is still news to people, which is kind of crazy. Um, but you know, that, that happened through a lot of the work that you, you were a part of. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and then kind of, um, maybe about assault weapons themselves, just because obviously they're in the news a lot. Okay, sure. Um, I, I played a small role, um, but yes, there was a, a statutory ban, federal ban for 10 years, and there was an administrative ban um, before that. Um, here's what happened. Vietnam happened. Um, we all saw Vietnam. We all saw the M15, the M4 be used as weapons of combat. Um, firearms that, that the military use tend to find a way into civilian life because you can move product and make money. Um, so civilian versions of the, the AR-15, the civilian, civilian version of the M-15, um, comes to market and was associated with some of the rapid rise in violence, firearm violence that we saw uh, 30 years ago. Here in California, we enacted a ban in 1989 or 90 that we still have as a result of a mass shooting. Guy used an AK to shoot a bunch of school kids and, and, and their teachers in a town that's about 35 miles from where I'm sitting right now. We still, we still have that ban. But what happened was California and then the Bush one administration to their credit and then Congress and, and the White House um, took action because they thought, saw a threat coming. People can, can, can think about January of 2020 when, uh-oh, COVID's coming, we better do something. That was the mindset. So Bans were put in place at a time when the weapons were not being used that frequently. They really didn't have the market penetration that they would have later. And there was opposition, as there always is, to that kind of regulation. There was entirely, understandably, a demand to show that the bans were working. And the, the scientists, in good faith, took that task on, but they faced this problem. When events are rare to begin with, it's hard to show a statistically significant decrease. And those bans were put in place when crimes with assault weapons were rare. So everybody who wanted to gloss over the implication said, oh, see, they don't work. 
the federal ban was allowed to sunset um, in 2004. Then, with the, the ban removed, assault-type weapons flooded the market. Today, the AR-15 is America's rifle. It, it's, it's fair to be America's firearm. It, um, and we need to keep in mind that firearms are consumer products. Industries make them, they advertise them, they sell them, they redesign them, they make them look fancy, they put, put them out in, in colors. They need to move product. They need to resell the people they've sold already. And firearms are not cigarettes. Firearms are durable products. So it's one thing to sell somebody a pack of cigarettes a day. It's another, another thing to sell them a gun a month because all the guns they bought before are still there. So that's been a problem. So what do we do? We find other uses for the product. We argue that the AR is a home defense weapon. It's not what it was designed for. Um, an AR, assault-type weapons, you asked me to talk about what they are. Mm -hmm. They are semi-automatic. Almost all of them are rifles. Um, semi-automatic means the gun will fire once every time you pull the trigger until it's empty. If you load it and fire the first round, you can just keep pulling the trigger and the gun will fire until there's no more ammunition. So that's one part, one, one important feature. The other one is that they accept detachable ammunition magazines, which can at a minimum hold 10 rounds, but can also hold 100 rounds. It can hold anything in between. 30 is a, or 20 is a, is a really common, um, are, are really common magazine sizes. So it'll fire 30 times, drop a magazine, put a new one um, in the magazine, well, it's called, and you've got another 30 rounds. So the civilian weapons are knockoffs of military weapons. The purpose of the weapon was to use gun terminology to put a lot of lead downrange in a hurry. They're not necessarily that accurate, but they can put a lot of lead downrange. So if I want to kill a lot of people, what's the tool I'm going to pick? A six-shot revolver? No, I'm going to pick a 30-shot rifle, reloadable 30-shot rifle. And, and that is the that was what the, the tool was designed for. It's why these weapons figure disproportionately in mass shooting, but no industry is going to argue that it makes its, makes its money selling to mass shooters. So they've come up with lots of, see air quotes here, legitimate civilian uses for weapons that were designed to kill a lot of people in a hurry. And we are stuck with that paradox. There are millions of these rifles in circulation now, and they're not going away. Sorry, it's pretty grim. It is. Also makes me wonder, like, I, for whatever reason, you describing that made me think of like a new iPhone every year, like them <laughs> designing a new iPhone. And I was just thinking right. to myself, like, it's just my lack of, of understanding and maybe ignorance, but I just, I just couldn't imagine like having one and then being like, look what they did to it. And I would like another one. It just, it doesn't, it just doesn't ring true, obviously for me, it would ring true for somebody else. So Upwards of 30% of the population in the United States owns firearms. It rings true for a lot of people. And people who own a gun tend to own three or four right? people. Because again, let me, let me give a gun owner's argument here. Guns are tools. You need the right tool for the job. So you hunt birds, you need a shotgun to hunt birds with. You hunt large and small game afoot, you need different kinds of rifles for that. Or if you're feeling really optimistic, a powerful handgun. Home defense, that could be a handgun, it could be a shotgun. Um, for defense, you want a large caliber gun that's going to put an assailant down right away. Those are really expensive to practice with. The ammunition is expensive, the gun's expensive. 
So you need a cheap, sorry, I won't use that word, a less expensive, small caliber gun to practice your marksmanship with. And I'm up to five or six guns already here. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I noticed in my research, and, and I, this seems like an opportune time to talk about it, but I think a lot of people would imagine somebody who's on the forefront of, of gun research and a lot of times talking about this stuff is somebody who doesn't use guns or has never used a gun or just really doesn't believe it in, and that's not you. Can you tell us a no. little bit about your background with guns? Sure. So um, I, I grew up a city kid. I, I grew up um, in, uh, on the, in, in Southern California on the beach, basically. And my, my dad was a World War II vet. He was a hero for what that's worth. There were guns in the home had the usual compact with dad that I think it was when I turned 14, I would be, we would, we would start hunting. And I did some marksmanship before that. Lost interest. I, again, beach rat. We hunted a lot, but we hunted with spear guns. We were, we were underwater people. And I just lost interest in, in firearms. But later got it back. I was a, uh, actually when I was in college, I was a camp counselor, got offered a job teaching riflery full time to little kids. Um, here at Davis, when we had one, I was a member of the rifle and pistol club and, and I enjoy the quiet and concentration that can come with marksmanship training and so forth. I, I, I subscribe to the position that firearms are tools. The problem is that we have allowed those tools to assume a role in our society that far exceeds any legitimate boundaries we might've set a long time ago. And that horse has left the bar. We are not going to get those guns back. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would love Dr. Wintemute to uh, to have you talk about what led you and talk about how you opened the violence prevention research program. I think that that dovetails, you know, what we just talked about and some of these grim thoughts about all of these assault rifles that exist. Um, you know, what talk talk about your life's work about looking into research behind this. Sure. So I, I came back from Cambodia convinced that violence was a health problem. I had just spent five months living it and put my job as an, as an ER doctor, the, the job I had at the time and went back to school to, to learn research methods so I could study it better as a public health problem. And, and Johns Hopkins was the place to do that. So that's, so that's where I went because the, the fundamental is there is a science to this. Um, it can be understood. Motor vehicle injuries are, are the best um, example. Guns are not cars. I'm not going to build that analogy. But <clears throat> 60 years ago, our motor vehicle death rates were off the charts. And led by physicians, people took that on as a health problem and studied it the way they, those people had been trained to study infectious diseases. The, the techniques work. They built a body of knowledge that led to effective interventions. And today we do pretty well compared to how we used to with motor vehicles. And that's still potentially true with firearms. So, and, and I, I became a believer early on. Um, and at the time, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, or a couple of years after I started, um, started making research grants available. And we got one. And then we got a bigger one for program of research and that proposal needed a name. And so I came up with violence prevention research program. We still like use the name because we like it. And, and we were in business and there were a couple of other places around the country doing the work. But then things took a turn 
and a member of Congress, Jay Dickey, who in his words, not mine, was serving as point man for the NRA, caused the money that CDC was giving to us and a few other people for research on firearm violence to be removed from their budget and given back to them for use for a, another purpose. And language got put into the budget bill saying that CDC's money could not be used to advocate or promote gun control. That's a direct quote. It did not say couldn't do research. It said couldn't advocate or promote gun control. But the writing was on the wall. And we lost our funding. And the other people uh, who were getting it did as well. Um, and CDC still today is very leery of, of um, funding research on firearm violence, although they've made some great strides. So there was a, a roughly 20-year period when there was almost no federal funding for research on one of the nation's leading health problems. If you just look at the, the, the body count, if I may, it's as if we had said, let's stop doing research on breast cancer. Let's stop doing research on diabetes. Let's just let the problem happen. We did that with firearm violence. So today, the good news is that money is again flowing and where for 20 years there were maybe a dozen people in the entire country working on this problem as their main focus. Now there are hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, um, who have made this their major research commitment. That genie is also out of the bottle, but we lost those 20 years. We're answering questions today that we could have answered in the 90s. It's, it's a regular experience for me that I'll talk to a young researcher or a journalist who will go, why don't we know the answer to and rattle off three or four basic questions? And I'll say, well, pal, welcome to the struggle. Um, it should have happened before, but it didn't. And it's, and it's your turn. It's our turn today. But in the interim, thousands of people died who would be alive today because we didn't get the answers back then. We didn't use those answers to create new programs of treatment and prevention. We lost. We can't keep losing. Yeah. You didn't stop going, though. I mean, I, I have to, I, I personally uh, have, have, have experienced the awfulness of what research can be sometimes, where you just feel like you're hitting your head against the wall a thousand times. And that has nothing to do with funding sometimes. That's <laughs> everything to do with doing the study itself. So, so in your case, you basically get all your funding removed, but like this program's been around that time. How did you keep going? Why did you keep going? So, well, why? Because the problem was still there. Um, how? Um, various people stepped up to help. There was a period of time when I, as an individual, was our major funder. That's not necessary anymore, but I did do that for a while. But it, I, I'll, I'll share a secret. It's, it, it was sort of like this at the beginning. And it's, to be honest, still is today. Here's this huge problem, huge problem. We, even the people who have the most expansive views of it underestimate its impact on our country. We, we talked about all of those ripple effects. It's woefully understudied. We spend far too little time trying to mitigate the consequences, trying to prevent it from happening again. There are organized efforts to keep that work from being done. It's physically risky. Um, I've had my life threat. Um, at one time, ATF was saying to me, so do you wear a vest? Um, it's professionally risky because there's not a lot of money. And if you need grants in order to advance, et cetera. To me, that was all, so what's not to like, you know? Um, if, if there's a huge problem and nobody's tackling it, okay, 
I'll tackle it. And, and it, I, I am now oversimplifying, but, but it really is true that I get, get up every day going, I am so lucky I get to do this work that means just a hell of a lot to me and might actually make a difference. And I even get paid. What's not to like? Great. I think that's that's so inspiring to see, especially see physicians do it, because I do feel like we get scared of the consequences of, you know, sticking up for or putting our putting our necks out. Um, and there's there's always a worry about oh, what professional backlash am I going to get from this, or is this going to uh, make it harder for me to practice medicine or yeah, I I just have so much respect, and I and I I love seeing physicians like you, Doctor Wintermute, and and it makes me think. Also, I was just watching not too long ago. There's a I believe it's on Netflix. Um, it's kind of the follow up documentary series uh, that was first um, Lennox Hill, and it followed a couple of neurosurgeons and a couple other uh, medical folks um at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City and it was just an excellently done docu-series and it and it kind of went and I think in the 2018-2019 and up until 2020 and, and it sort of ended right as the pandemic began and it was just such an unbelievable and, and extremely well done docu-series and then more recently <clears throat> it's there's kind of a follow-up to it called Emergency NYC and it follows several different physicians and other um, healthcare personnel. Like there's a, um, a helicopter nurse that you get to follow and a couple um, paramedics and EMS folks that you follow. And it's really, really cool. And then the two same neurosurgeons from Lenox Hill, you get to see them again. It's really great. But anyway, I say all this because um, you could tell they they got just a moment to talk very briefly and kind of in a very kind of a slightly sanitized way about gun violence. And it was because we got this access as the viewer of this documentary to see one of the first patients that you follow in is a, is a young teenage guy who is shot at a barbecue. And he comes in, you know, to the, the children's hospital where they're, where they're um, following a pediatric trauma surgeon. And you're seeing this kid, you know, come in come intubated with he's already he's already been brought in from another hospital and. You know, he's already had a couple different surgeries to stabilize his abdominal wounds. And you're you're meeting the surgeon that's taking him on at this new trauma center to help him. You, you meet his mom, who's horribly distraught and some of his friends. And um, and he's not the only patient that comes in that we see and we follow from from gun violence or, you know, uh, uh, injuries from gun violence. And they and they give each physician like. A 30 second little soundbite of just how you can just tell their anger and their their exasperation with this problem because they deal with it constantly over and over and over again. And I'm sure, Dr. Wintermute, you've you've seen many, many similar things. But I just feel like even with this great documentary series that is meant on purpose to be so that the viewer can watch behind the scenes what's happening, it's still like it isn't this terrible, you know, and it was just such one little moment, but I was still very proud that it existed and, and happy to see it there. Yes. And I, I, I think probably part of the frustration and the anger that those clinicians experience comes mm -hmm. from their sense that nobody's listening, nobody's watching. They're, they're just working in a vacuum. And to some extent, that's true. But we started today um, talking about the increasing awareness the public has of, of firearm violence as a problem, as their problem. Um, 
I'm actually, you guys haven't asked this. Um, I'm optimistic I mean, for, for all that I've, I've given you, <laughs> for all that I've given you gloom and doom. I mean, I, I lived the time when I could count the researchers in this field on the fingers of two hands. Um, I can't do that anymore. Um, there are all kinds of people. Um, there's this podcast. There are people all over the place <clears throat> saying in, in the various ways that people can, I want to help. What can I do? And that might be vote. Um, it might be, well, you're a foundation president. Let's talk. Um, but all of us can do things to, to be part of solution. And increasingly, people are doing those things in part because they perceive the threat from gun violence. Maybe they've had a personal experience um, in part because they, I think, and we've talked about it in several contexts, they see guns and the threat of gun violence seeping into aspects of our lives where it, where those things had not been before. And people are recognizing we really need to do something about this problem now, or it will be too late. We will be so awash. Violence will be so normalized that we'll have lost our chance. Um, so I am optimistic in the near term about mobilization of that powerful combination of good science and public opinion that simply will not take no for an answer and we'll we'll start to get some change for the better i feel like you did a great segue for me because this is a question that i have asked myself on the regular um since my own personal experience and maybe should have been asking myself more in the past and i think probably a lot of our listeners if you're listening right now would say i've thought a lot and that is like what can i do you know like how do i how do i help this problem and i think i even came across you look like you have something called the what you can do initiative and i'd love you to kind of give us some tips like what 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 can we do sure um it's my favorite little slogan um, first thing is to make a commitment um i i hear a lot gee a mass shooting will happen um is this the one that's big enough awful enough for congress to do something for my state legislators to do something for somebody else to do something and my response to that is, I really don't care about this somebody else. I want to know if this is when you will do something. So, so if, if you're a clinician, you can, you can make a commitment. And, and we, we've become very detailed about this piece of, of it. You can make a public commitment to incorporate the prevention of firearm violence into your practice of medicine or nursing or whatever your profession is. And the details are going to depend on you know, it's different for you guys as orthopods, me as an ER doc, a psychiatrist, a family doc. It, it's going to mean different things to all of us. But we all have contributions to make. Clinicians need to think outside the clinical box. We need to think the way people did, clinicians did, back in the days before there was medicine and public health and this huge gap in between. And, and we're getting there on many fronts, uh, which is part of why I'm optimistic, where clinicians recognize that their community, the population they serve, is their patient just as the individuals in front of them are, that they have an obligation to the community's health, to the population's health as community leaders, because every physician is a community leader, whether they accept that role or not, it's there. Um, members of the general public can, can make their opinions known. I will, I will say this, I, I know this from repeated firsthand experience. Letters to policymakers make a difference. 
people who think that writing to, the, to their elected official is a waste of time are just wrong. I know it. I've seen, seen firsthand. I've been in the office when letters have changed votes. People need to make their opinions known to the people who present them. They need to vote. Um, they need to, if they're so inclined, show up uh, at demonstrations, if that's the kind of, of thing. But you don't need to be out in the streets in order to, to make a difference. They need to talk to their family, their friends, their social networks, and help create a climate of intolerance for violence. People in leadership positions need to, A, tone down rhetoric because people follow their leaders. And if the leaders are talking trash, the people who follow them will too. And there's been all too much trash talking at the top lately. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. There are all kinds of things that people can do. And let me actually, no, let me stop this way. One of the real dangers is that people will develop a sense of futility about this, that they will believe there's nothing I can do and they won't try. And that's just wrong. I will, I, I can't guarantee that if everybody does something, good things will happen, but I can absolutely guarantee that if nobody does good things, bad things will happen. That's for sure. It's a really powerful statement. I don't know if I have much more to add, Julie. Do you have anything you want to? No, that was <laughs> that was very powerful. And I feel like, I mean, I feel like we do have a couple of things, uh, you know, uh, uh, more bulleted points on the on the outline. But I do feel like we've touched on a lot of the the really important. I don't know the really important take home points. Personally, I feel like that we have. Anything you think we've missed, Doctor Wintemute? Anything that no, you would we love got to it. get off your chest? Well, um, I, I have to say. Uh, I go by Garen. You want to keep calling me Dr. Winnemute, that's fine. But um, I'm a Californian. You know, we don't do job titles here. Um, anyway, no, I, it's been a great conversation. I think we really have covered all the important points, some of them more than once from different aspects. And that's a that's a really good thing to have happen. Um, it's been a pleasure. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Garen. Yes. You're welcome. Um, one of the things we always do towards the end of the show is ask you to kind of tell our listeners where they can learn more or where they can learn more about you. So like where, point people to oh, places sure. we put them in show notes and things like that. Okay. Fair enough. So um, I, I want a, a preamble. Um, in addition to the violence prevention research center or program that we talked about, um, I also direct something called the California fire and violence research center, which is a state funded organization. You mentioned it right at the but I bring us back to it because one of the things we do with California taxpayer money is create something called the Bullet Points Project, which is on the web at thebulletpointsproject.org. <laughs> and its primary target audience is health professionals, but it is written for people with all sorts of backgrounds. It is a deep resource on firearm violence, on how to prevent firearm violence, on what to think about doing if you want to take that what can I do challenge um, seriously. Um, it's, it's a really solid resource and it contains links to others. Um, people can also just Google violence prevention research program um, and get directly to our, our website, kind of got a long URL, but, but it's an easy Google search um, and learn about all of us, there, there are more than 30 of us now. For years, there were four. 
And now there are more than 30, uh, which is another reason for optimism. Um, we make our research available to people. If, if it's not actually on the website to download, we'll send it to people. We're, we're in the business of creating evidence and making it available for use. Do you guys take individual public funding? If people felt so moved by this, can they donate to your research? They, they certainly can. And thank you for asking that question. Um, at the, the bottom of our website's homepage, it's a, it's a university standard, is a little donate button and you can just um, click on, on that button. Um, we have people who make one-time donations. We have people who make recurring monthly donations. We wouldn't be where we are without them. Honestly, um, Gary, I, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Um, it's a it's a difficult topic um, for me personally, but one that I I felt incredibly strongly about doing. Um, you know, ironically, we we I don't know if ironic's the right right word, but we we release episodes on Tuesdays, um, and Tuesday of this year is July fourth. Um, and so I, as I mentioned in the intro, this is probably a week we wouldn't have released an episode. We may have done something just that we'd already had recorded or something from the past just because it's a holiday. Um, and I saw that on the calendar maybe a month or two ago. And, and, and there's been a lot of, you know, what is the 4th of July going to be like this year here just in general? Um, and so me personally, I thought, I, I feel like I want to release something on that date. I just don't know if I want to let it to go. And, and so I thought to myself, how do I talk about gun violence, but have it fit the show? Like, how do I, I don't want to just talk about the politics and I don't want to just rant about my own experiences. I want to talk about medicine and health. Um, and so being able to have your public health perspective and understanding that, that honestly, uh, doing something for gun violence and, and violence in general is preventative medicine. And we can prevent people from having problems by taking it on. So I, I really appreciate you being here for the one year mark of, of what happened to my hometown in Highland Park. I think gun violence is out of control in our country. And we're just really grateful for your dedication and efforts to help make us safer and healthier. Anything you want to add, Julie? No, that was lovely, Jeremy. And I'm extremely grateful to have you on, Garen. This is a, a, a extremely important topic and one that, that hits everybody. But um, I, I do have a, an ending if, if you, unless you wanted to do an ending, Jeremy. Well, I did write, I, anybody who listens to our show knows that Julie's the ending person. So I, I, I don't I, need I, to have the last word on this one. It's okay. You, you are the, you are the creative juice that flows uh, through, through this podcast. And I, I actually do want, I do want to give, I do want to give you the ending, but I do want to say one more thing. I, I wrote, I wrote that no one should have to be next. So I really would like the take home here from my perspective to please get involved with your local, regional, national organizations that do the work to lower gun violence and increased awareness in ways that you can make an impact on your community. Because as Karen mentioned, even a letter can make a difference. So just the next time you're saying it can't happen to me, just know that it, it can happen to anybody and, and nobody should have to feel that. Yeah, agreed. So let's not normalize gun violence, but let's hold on to our optimism and reflect on what we can do. Listen to your doctor friend. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to SkillCell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. 
The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.